Hello and welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about expatriates and the artistic way they've styled their lives around the world. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. Find yourself shipwrecked in a far off place and Dale, welcome to the show. <laughs> Try not to plan too much at all. You know, it just be spontaneous. I quit the limiting stories. I really try to overcome that fear. I'm gonna sail again. One more. I got one more sailing. Love her to leave her wild. But it didn't work for me. The American dream wasn't gonna work for me because I didn't fit American dream. I had respect that I was a young farmer. Now I'm an old guy, and I respect myself. You know what, Jacob? I'm a secret fan. And I prefer to just be secret. And if you can figure out who Dale Dagger is, then figure it out. And if you can't, then don't. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Sitting here with Bryce Kluklock. Close enough. A gentleman from Los Angeles. That's correct. Who's now living in Nicaragua as an expatriate. Who has an interesting story to tell. He's been around the world a million times and... Found himself in the Middle East at one point as a private contractor, I believe, yes. who did some fascinating things and then made his way here after that stint to kind of unwind and, and try try the life of surfing and being a surf camp owner. So it's going to be fun to hear his story, and I'd like to introduce Bryce to the show. Welcome to the show, Bryce. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Javen. Yeah, man. So let's get to it. Let's just start. You grew up in L.A., Mm-hmm. And I believe your father was in the military. Yeah, uh, I grew up in a town <clears throat> called Whittier that even people in L.A. lots of times don't know where it is because it's L.A. is a big freeway town, but Whittier is surrounded and nothing actually goes through it. So it just kind of like is this black hole in the middle, like right between L.A. and Orange County that tons of people don't even know exists. Except it's the home of Richard Nixon and the biggest dump in America. Oh, that's fascinating. So what was your childhood like? Did you play in the dump or I mean, what, what kind of stuff did you do? <laughs> no, the dump's like hidden behind the cemetery, so you don't go out there that often. But uh, no, nah, it was it was, a, it was pretty basic standard suburban childhood, Catholic family, so went to Catholic school all the way through high school, so kind of ended up getting a bit of a skewed perspective because like when you're just plucking from a specific community like Catholic, like in my neighborhood because of my grade school, I thought about half of America was Filipino, you know, just, <laughs> I thought that was kind of the standard, but, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was interesting. It was pretty just boring, classic suburban LA childhood. Nothing. Did, you, did your parents travel much with you? I mean, were you like an army brat? Did your dad move around? He did the moving. It was like, it was kind of a thing because my parents moved around at first. They did a lot of moving around. And then after my sister was born, they moved to LA. And it was clearly like they stopped there for the duration of raising my sister and I. And then pretty much as soon as I was off to college, they were back out again so yeah he just he he did the most of the traveling and you know my mom stayed around and raised us and, you know he he was always a part of the family uh it was just like that old school like hey go, go work send the paychecks home and it, he was it was it was interesting it was i mean it's fine i know lots of guys my age that don't get along with their dads and we get along great so would you visit him uh no not really He'd kind of go out for chunks at a time and then just come back. It was, he was a reservist, so it was, it wasn't too bad. 
Yeah. So then what, what was your exposure to the rest of the world, and when did you start having a desire to maybe see the rest of the world? Um, well, I really... Like, we traveled mostly domestically when I was a kid. I mean, I went to, like, did a few trips to Mexico and Canada growing up. It was really in college when it was more I started to make my own decisions that I was like, it's like there's a lot of world out there. I still remember um, my best friend Matt and I, after our first year in undergrad, we got together and we were talking about how, like, it was just, again, a new exposure level was going to college. And... I kind of felt like I'd done a fair amount of traveling domestically, nothing crazy, but you know, you're a kid, you, you go where your parents tell you to, and that's just, that's how your vacations work. And I remember I was at the, the DFAC, not the DFAC, what do you call it in college, the dining hall. Mm-hmm. I was at the dining hall, and like, there was this girl in my dorm, it was this just like, total, like, first year, still punked out from high school, like... And we were sitting chatting, and it was Cordon Bleu day. And you know how, like, dining facilities do those, like, little microwave-style Cordon Bleus? It looked kind of like a Hot Pocket. It was one of those, and I loved those things. I had some weird association with them from childhood, where I just enjoyed finding those in the freezer. So this girl's sitting there, we're, like, eating her Cordon Bleus, and I'm, like, having this, like, nostalgic childhood moment. And she just goes, this is so much worse than the Cordon Bleu in Switzerland. No. And I just had to pause, and I'm like, I need to readjust. <laughs> like, I gotta, I gotta go do something about this. So that's when my buddy Matt and I were just like, all right, we got a little money saved up. Let's buy tickets to Paris and figure it out from there. This is why you're in college. Yeah, so that was like my summer uh, after first year. We went and did that. Okay. And it was a very interesting trip. And Like, it's so fun being the, like, pretty worldly travel person at this point, looking back and just seeing the pile of mistakes we made just a bonehead first timer moves falling for just about every scam you could fall for <laughs> tell, tell me one that sticks out um like it was just we we had no idea what trail to go on so we 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 went from paris to london to northern ireland to dublin and then back and that itinerary is the itinerary you should do for your last vacation before you're gonna die. You know, we went to cozy countries with trains and like just infrastructure, and it was, it was just like it wasn't remotely adventurous, even though it felt like it at the time. And uh, yeah, about the only thing I really, I, the, the biggest like shine from that was the Northern Ireland piece because we got to meet up with my cousins, and that that was kind of cool meeting up with like you know their second cousins, so my dad's first. And uh, it was just nice getting, actually, the family piece was nice, whereas Paris could not care less. It's not a town for a 19-year-old or 18, I think it was. London was just so far out of our budget that it was... One night, we were, like, I'm trying to remember exactly how much it was, but we didn't spend much time in London, but we went to a hostel, and the dorm beds were something like 40 bucks a night, and, you know, when you're 18 and on a budget, that's tough. So we went to the lobby and we're like, okay, we got to sit down and figure this out. we got to think about this. And the kid at this, like, okay, whatever. <laughs> we just sat around and talked about it. And we're like, well, let's see how long we can sit here. And we just fell asleep in the lobby. 
So we got a free night, <laughs> so got a free night <laughs> sleeping in chairs in the lobby of the hostel. But it worked. And I think the, the kid at the front desk was just sympathetic. <laughs> so I remember waking up at one point and he was sweeping around me. <laughs> that's awesome. You got to do what you got to do. But that's yeah. interesting. So it sounds like you'd almost recommend at a younger age maybe taking a little bit more of an adventurous trip than the classic European adventure. There is so much world out there, you aren't going to see it all. And if you are the rare person that does, it means you became dedicated to it in a way that you're gonna, once you do see it all, you're gonna feel like your purpose in life has been ripped from you. So it's probably best to kind of have that little bit of still something to want, but Europe's always going to be there. It's always going to have cushy trains. It's always going to have Viking riverboat cruises. And when you're old, you're still going to want to travel. But when you're old, you're not going to be able to t- sit on a bus through Africa anymore. Those You missed your window. I'm only 35, and like, I can't... A four-hour car ride hurts worse than it ever did. Like, it's just, it's, it changes. And so when you're young, hit those uncomfortable places. Get to those hard-to-get-to places because you're not going to be able to do it forever. And even if you are, you're not going to want to. That's how, that's how the perspective changes. You're going to look at it and be like, yeah, I could, but it's just going to hurt and it's not worth it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on that Viking riverboat cruise and, you know, with all the other old folk and be walked around and be like, so that's what the Kremlin looks like. Click. That's great advice, man. Now, you're only 35, and you've been in Nicaragua, what, now, like, seven years? Almost eight, yeah. Almost eight years. Um, so that takes you riding in Nicaragua at what age? I think it was 20, uh, 26, 27, 26, 27. 26, 27. I mean, and up until coming here, you had lived a life that I think most people cannot even comprehend and will never understand, mm-hmm. which I'd like to get into a little bit now, because you studied at Davis, studied yeah. poli-sci, mm-hmm. had a military father. And then you wound up in Iraq, but you weren't in the military. Yeah. Can you talk about that and what what compelled you? Maybe let's talk a little bit about you were in school doing poli-sci and you decided to also um, study Arabic. Yeah. Well, the Arabic actually came later. I started off studying Farsi because it was the only thing available at Davis. And, um, and then international relations was my other major. And that one was just because, uh, like, I... I mean, poli-sci is that major for when you don't really know what you want to do. It doesn't sound like communications to mom and dad, so you don't feel like you have to justify it so much. And uh, my my gift was I was I was kind of a rain man with scheduling because I I, I did a couple of years. I just didn't know what I wanted. And I was just taking classes for fun, and I was like, I got no clue what I want to do when I grow up. And I mean, I still. Not entirely sure, but it's it was kind of discovering that about myself, that that's just me. And uh, with the scheduling, I could schedule Tuesday-Thursday classes for an entire quarter. It was like Tuesday-Thursday, 8 a.m. to 11, 2 to 3. And that was it. So I had these four-day weekends every weekend. And uh, so kids would bring their, uh, in my fraternity, they'd bring me their like course catalog and what their major was and I could just go through and like build them a tight little schedule like that and tell them which class were going to be competitive so which ones they had to register for first and all that and my one of my buddies came into my room and asked me to like do it for him I was like sure no problem and I was scratching it up and he was an international relations major and I was like I think I'm done with your major and he's like what are you talking about we went through it 
And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've done all of this when I was just drifting, taking classes for fun. So he was like, oh, go talk to the counselor, you know, her office is whatever. And I went to the social sciences building and I walked and the political science counselor was to the right, directly across the hallway was the international relations uh, counselor. And I went into her office, gave her my student number. I had to take one more class. This was like my second to last quarter of college. So I almost <laughs> missed it. But uh, yeah, I just took one more class and extra major. Wow. That's incredible. And when did... So let, let's... Were they... Were you charging to do these kids' schedules in your fraternity? Or were you no. doing for free? It, it was just for free. It was so just you, for fun. You naturally realized you had a gift for scheduling. When did the idea pop in your head that maybe I could get over to Iraq and organize things within what was going on in Iraq as a private contractor? Well, that was, um, because I had the Farsi background, um, I graduated in, that would have been 2000, or early 2004, because I did an extra quarter. And, um, yeah, it was just kind of the, the geopolitical stance at the time. It was, I studied Arabic because, like, it wasn't because I had a particular passion for it. it, it there was money, mm-hmm. it's plain and simple. You know, there was there was an opportunity, and you know, just kind of go for it. So, after college, when my uh, my when I graduated from undergrad, my parents uh, wanted to get me a gift. They got my sister a truck, and uh, so they wanted to see what I wanted. And I went to uh, Damascus University for like four months and did an in intensive Syria. yeah in Syria, where, and, where it's a hotbed of like political unrest and right now, now now it was a very different place when I was there it was I mean it it was it was weird because it was a very stable dictatorship at the time so, and it was I mean it was a wonderful place I really enjoyed it but it's I mean it's a bummer it's just in my lifetime I don't know if it's gonna be like anything remotely I mean I'm not trying to justify the dictatorship or anything but I just don't know if it's going to be that sort of livability again. It was it was a fascinating, great place. And part of what made it what it was was that it was so cut off from the rest of the world. It was just really unique and lots of history. But um, it was, it was, it, it had that kind of like East Germany feel though of like, it's fine, you know, everybody's pretty free. You just do not talk about politics for any reason. It's, it is just wildly off the table. That, that was, and that was just everyday life, you know. How long were you there for? Like I said, about four months, I think it was, remember right? And just intense immersion of Arabic. Yeah, eight hours of classes a day. Syrian culture. Yeah. And you live with a Syrian family? That's it, yeah. So a lot of Christian family in uh, Baptuma in, in the old city. Wow. So, yeah. Did you get to meet any chicks? Like, did you hang out with girls? Or? Nah, I, I, I really didn't because I, I don't know, I've, I've always kind of had this policy is like, I don't, depending where it's, I'm not going to say I don't date local girls. It's that I don't play the local game if I'm not willing to play by the local rules and the local rules in the Middle East are very prohibitive, you know, like, so if, if I was studying in Germany or something, very different local rules, non-issue, uh, it's, you know, you know, no one wants to get killed by an angry brother. <laughs> like, True. That's... True. And that's good advice. <laughs> it ain't worth it. So yeah, so you finish your course, you get back to the States, and then what? Yeah, then um, then I started looking for work in the Middle East and just trying to apply my uh, 
my resume, you know, it was kind of tough at first. That was my, that was my initial introduction into the, the, the cold hard world of schools over. Like, it's amazing when you graduate and suddenly everyone around you is in their mid forties and everything's pretty boring and you're ridiculously poor and lonely and just kind of getting by. So I worked on um, like a local California political campaign at one point. Uh, another time, like me and my buddy, because uh, the campaign was over that I was doing and he just lost his job and we just kind of crunched the numbers and figured out that we could buy tickets to Thailand and live there for a month total for less than the price of sitting on our butts in LA and doing nothing so we just went for it so went to Thailand for a month there and then it was I like worked in a homebrew shop supply shop part time and just kept applying looking for work and ended up uh, getting a good after about a year of looking getting a job with a company called Titan and uh yeah that was and from there it was on to the next piece because yeah i mean that was that was an interesting time just that year between it was it was rough it's just rough it's just you know life's kind of setting you up and that that real world is cold and hard (laughs) so when titan hired you what they hired you as uh an assistant site manager because they were having issues with a couple of their sites because it was Titan was in charge of the majority of the linguist contract for the Department of Defense, and um, the uh, most of their uh, most of their management was uh, were former military, and I had the campaign management experience, and the um, problem was anybody that spoke Arabic that already had clearance because of former military experience was taking the linguist jobs because they paid almost twice what the management jobs did and they were having this problem because none of their managers spoke Arabic and you can theoretically do it but it's tough I mean it's like an engineering lots of times when they get an HR guy in charge he doesn't know engineering it's you if someone doesn't speak the language, it's really difficult. You can't tell who's good. You have to trust who's good and who isn't at their job. And that just kind of falls to pieces. And to boot, there's a big cultural divide between, you know, a lot of the linguists we're hiring, depending where they come from and their backgrounds, and the, um, and the management staff. So I ended up get going over as that. And uh, first I was working in Kuwait and a couple, being in charge of a couple bases in southern Iraq. And yeah, I did that for about a year. So and you just land and like you're like, all right, I'm the manager now of the linguist section of like, like you just figured it out. Uh, not not exactly. I was the assistant site manager, so I had this guy over me. But Kuwait was kind of a mess when I got there. In that one year with that company, I went through seven different site managers, seven managers over me, and it was just. It was really tough to coordinate, and it was just, I mean, a lot of them just weren't good. Just just happens, wrong guy for the job. Um, so what's life like in Kuwait, then, as a ugh. young American man who's just been dropped into kind of, like, near a war zone? 
Yeah, well, I mean, Kuwait was quite stable. It's it's just it's yeah, it's stable and safe. But like, I don't know. My biggest takeaway from it, it was kind of the like standard Gulf. Just I don't know how really to describe it. It was like you know, I had life at work, and then outside, it was like, all right, just go to a juice bar and you know, get some dinner at TGI Fridays and... Do they have alcohol? No. Totally illegal in Kuwait. So, I mean, there's definitely some illegal, like, underground black market, but it's... First off, Johnny Walker Red Label is, like, the about only thing you could find, and it's about $120 a bottle. And, um... The junk tastes like a liquid campfire. I won't drink it for free, and and it was kind of funny because that would that happen sometimes. You're like behind like closed doors with Kuwaiti business people, and they're like trying to show off, and like they have their little slave guy come out with a bottle of red label. No, this guy's super high up. He's got the black label, and he comes by, and they dump it in your coffee, and you're like, dude, it's nine a.m. on a Wednesday, and then you realize though, like. Because it's fully illegal, they lack that, very frequently that experience, the cultural piece of like where it's right and where it's wrong and the subtle details. Like, so, you know, you just be sitting around chatting with a Kuwaiti person like, hey, let's have a couple drinks. Oh, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, I'll be fine, man. I'll have a couple drinks, do some blow, drown a couple of my workers. I'm like, whoa, whoa, that went off the rails so fast. But, yeah, it was... It, it was a weird place. Um, I I got to tell you, every place I've ever been, it's the one I genuinely have zero interest in ever going back. I don't think it's... I mean, it is culturally almost devoid. And it... Like, one of the reasons I ended up quitting, because that job, I got another offer that actually paid less that ended up taking me to the next step. And it was because... Like I said, it was, it was weird that, like, you know, I had my work life and then outside I go to restaurants and just kind of boring. It was like being in America, like, it was like being in a, like, a bad knockoff of America. So, like, all the food was the same restaurants, but they weren't very good. And the big one was every time you went out was a guilt trip because I don't care what they call it. They have slavery there. It is all over the place. And it makes it really hard to just go out and spend money because it's kind of sickening. And, you know, you have these people who have their, how, they have their passports held by their, by their sponsors and they're bused to and from work and they're allowed zero private life. They're not given a way to quit their job. You know, they, they have all sorts of fancy terminology for it, but it looks a lot like slavery to me. Really? And the, my kind of straw that broke the back I was driving down the highway and I got off and I'm sitting at the stoplight and this guy pulls up and he's sitting he's in a suburban and in the driver's seat he's sitting there passenger seat is empty row behind him is two wives veiled up Row behind that is this, like, probably three or four kids just jumping around, screaming, you know, children. And in the trunk area, huddled up with her knees under her head, was their 
Malaysian nanny. And I was just like, that girl's in the trunk with no seatbelt and the passenger seat is wide open. And I was just like, I can't, I can't be around this. I just can't do it. I can't contribute to this. I can't be party to this. And I got, had this other offer on the table that I was considering and I was like, dude, this is, this is my life being here and I, I'm, I'm out. I'm just mm. done. Mm. So I ended up taking another day and it was funny. I was went, I took a pay cut and went to a combat zone. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute. So yeah, that's interesting. So they literally bring people over from um, Malaysia. Yeah, all over. Yeah, and it's they a take lot. Their passport and they don't give it back and basically just become. Yeah, it's servant. it's a guest worker thing. So it's and the it, it's the, the 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 less the more private it gets like home domestic servant and such just the worst it gets because there's no regulation when you got a company at least you got an inspector coming in every once in a while when you're in a house man and people don't understand the way the way the houses they're built they're like fortresses I mean every house is completely blinded up and part of that is because like depending I mean if you if you have impossible cultural standards People aren't going to stop doing things. They're going to stop letting you see them. If I were to tell you it's culture, you're not allowed to go to the bathroom. Stop doing it, Chapin. You're not going to stop doing it, but you ain't going to do it out there. You're just going to hide in your home and do it. So as a result, you get a lot of these like fortified little fortresses where things are different. It's more about the projected public face you're showing. But again... It goes back to the drinking thing where it's like if you don't have the little cultural push and shove of showing what really is and isn't acceptable, it starts off with a scotch and soda and then you're drowning your maid in the bathtub. Wow. It just goes off the rails. <laughs> That's interesting, man. Um, so then you got an offer to go to Iraq. Yeah. And you... With another smaller company and... Uh, yeah, I uh, just got a job at the working on a State Department contract in Baghdad. And I mean, so you just get dropped into a combat zone as a representative of the State Department, or this is a private no, no, private company. Okay. Um, and that one was it was a very different experience because like the bigger companies tend to have more of a cookie cutter like factory process, and it's it's kind of the thing like classic corporate stuff where it's the the policies are turned on high, pushed down to the smaller pieces especially when you're in disparate countries and they're like this doesn't work here we have internet three hours a day dude and uh whereas a smaller company it's more about hiring the right people kind of entrusting them to get the job and setting the guidelines of here are the in stone paperwork and order done like absolute um necessities and then uh from there just you know kind of trying to use your system, you know, because you, I mean, you try to, it's important that everybody in a small company really be good at what they do because one person can really bring it all down. Whereas at the big companies, I think they, they plan on a certain amount of knucklehead, you know, it's in, that's kind of where people can hide and just stare at their computer all day and go around on Facebook. Whereas when you're a small company, you can't do that and you can't have it. You know, because if your buddy's doing it, he could bring your contract down with with him, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so what were you doing? Uh, there was a program called the Provincial Reconstruction Teams, 
and they were like these temporary reconstruction consulates throughout the country. And it was just, you know, the job we were asking of State Department through the um, Iraq thing. I don't know how to describe it without mm. getting in trouble. It was, um, it, it was, we're asking a lot of state. It is not in their specific, their typical mandate. Like, mm. you look at what an embassy does in most countries, right? And mm. so, you got here and you didn't, your passport ran out of pages. Mm. Fine, we'll get you more pages. Whereas in Iraq, they're like, rebuild every hospital in the country. Mm-hmm. Like, All right. So it was, so as a result of it not being in the typical state umbrella, it just, it was, there were jobs that required a lot of contracting and bringing people in because a lot of it, it's the, the goal was never to be there forever. Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of state department's thing when they typically go in, it's like, Hey, we're setting up an embassy. That's what we do. And this embassy in theory is going to be here forever. So we're giving temporary jobs to a organization designed to do things permanently. So contractors, mm-hmm. and you're of, contracted to go out re- or build these buildings. So what I was doing, I was on the local labor uh, contract, so I was in charge of managing the aspects of keeping the employees that were working, mostly engineers and stuff, on designing these projects. And you know, mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, how much of this can you talk about? Is it kind uh, of it's just always wonky. Um, it's I don't know. It's I mean, actual work stuff that that kind of sums it up. I mean, yeah. we had. There were a lot of very obviously specific projects we were on, but it was, I mean, that was kind of just the day job of it. Mm -hmm. There wasn't too much exciting save for, um, like the, the hardest part. And this was one of the hardest parts across the board and working in Iraq was payroll Mm -hmm. because they're big projects with a lot of money and you you don't exactly do direct deposit mm-hmm. in a war zone. It's not like you just give your boss a canceled check. So mm-hmm. most of these payments were cash. So having mm-hmm. to figure out the logistics of getting, moving, paying securely and, you know, making sure when you're dealing with a lot of cash, you re it's, it's, you every set of hands it passes through they go through a lot of temptations so you've got to make sure your systems are in order to prevent any yeah. problems. What kind of cash are we talking about? Like how much money are we um, that was in your hands at one point With time? Titan I got to personally discover it can only carry two million dollars. Physically once, 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 once we hit two million dollars I need a I need a, we, we need some more support. Um, so you physically had two million dollars in duffel bags in your hand. Yeah, but that wasn't that wasn't me holding a payroll or anything. That was just the, the experience of it. So that okay. one, I I typically um, my payrolls weren't. It, it kind of depended, but it's it's kind of funny because that's one of those pieces though that like ruins movies for me. Where these guys are like, "We're gonna do this thirty million dollar haul." And I'm like, "There are two of them. They need a pallet jack and a truck. What is this? Are they robbing five hundred euro notes?" But. Um, yeah, or another one that was funny. One time I had to do a uh, a payroll, and I was I went to this cash office, and it was like I think that one was like thirty two grand, mm-hmm. and the uh, the girl working this cash office clearly this was not an everyday thing for her. Some come out there, I need thirty two thousand dollars, and uh, when she uh, 
when when she got, like was giving it to me, it was clear like I mean she's like an E two in the army and you know that's that's nearly two years pay and she's like looking like she's like expecting me to pull out like this handcuffed briefcase and like put it in and close it and I mean thirty two grand it's like three four, four inches this is not it's not a whole lot of bills and she looked at me she's like what are you gonna do with it. And I was just opened up my body armor and stuffed it inside. I'm like, this is the last thing leaving me. So, yeah, I just kind of tucked it around. It would have made for a great shot in a movie. Like, guy getting shot up with his body armor and just little splatters of bills going everywhere. But So you collect these 32 grand. You, you have body armor. You have protection? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, not going. Okay. Sorry. And uh, that's fine. Well, and it's just so, people are still doing jobs like this, and I really absolutely. Don't really so then details. you um, take it and deliver it to whoever needs to be paid for the work that they've done. Exactly. And that's just how they got paid. And you did that for a year. Yeah, I did that. Well, that one was for a year. That was that was still with the uh, Titan. Uh, I didn't like the kick. That was kind of the nice thing about moving on. I got turned into more of a management role in the job after that so I didn't actually have to physically handle cash too often mm-hmm. in the in in, in Iraq mm-hmm. cash is cash is filthy it smells terrible mm-hmm. big quantities of it it's been in everyone's socks forever it's mm-hmm. gross interesting and so I mean how, how's your overall feeling at this point about the Middle East the war that's going on your presence there like did you formulate any kind of opinions about it or just a job that had to get done and, and you were just doing a job and then trying to make enough cash to get out of there well it's kind of tricky I mean at the beginning it was like when I first got to Baghdad that was that would have been 2005 it was it was kind of right at the time of the the surge and it was it was just a really good energy like it was really good people like A types that really because there was, there was the early war where there was, like, it was kind of chaotic. Things hadn't been structured. Uh, a lot of knuckleheads managed to work their way into the system and try to rob, steal, and get rich. And fortunately, you know, the, the government... I'm not, I'm not a big fan of a lot of what they do, but they seem to, even with time, be able to go back through the books and find people. So it, it's... With time, most of those knuckleheads have been found and busted. They thought they were home and safe years later and still got found out. But um, fortunately, by the time I got there, there had already been a bit of a, like, fiasco with that sort of type and, like, the cowboys and stuff. So a lot of them, they were always obvious. When you got into it, it was the kind of stuff that, like, you know, you see on CNN and you're like, oh, everyone over there is like that. And it wasn't. It was a few people giving a really bad name, and everyone knew who they were. It wasn't, like, subtle, so it really just needed the right kind of management to come over and be like, you, you're gone. Mm -hmm. And that kind of happened. So it was, like I said, a lot of good people who were just really good at their jobs, and the kind of place that that, like, mission, that, that general feeling of trying to win this thing was good because... It was a lot of A-types, and A-types don't tend to work well together. Mm-hmm. So when you have that grander mission, it really kind of did, and everybody mm-hmm. just did their piece, and you know you had to try to be the best at it because if you weren't, you could you could get people killed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just a matter of like, oh, 
screwed up that PowerPoint. Yeah. So, um, so you're in Iraq. When did you decide to close up shop and, uh, and you're done with it? Yeah, that was that was a, a series of a lot of things. It was it was weird. Um, I am really glad I worked at the embassy. Got to live in the international zone. It's the IZ, it's the green zone, but it stopped being the green zone after couple years, I don't remember exactly when, and then it switched to the IZ, and, um, but people always expect to be called the green zone, so I thought I'd clarify. So, it was, it was an interesting, weird little blip in history, and I'm really glad I got to do it and see it, but with time, I was noticing there were kind of just a couple different types of people there. There were the guys that were coming on a one-year contract because they had a specific goal, um, or they had a debt that they realized, you know, this job, I can get it paid off, or just, hey, I'm trying to build a new house, something like that. And they would come, and they would be like, August, August, they'd do their year, and then they'd go. Uh, and this is the contractors I'm only specifically talking about. Government's completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, then there were the guys that had kids and ex-wives and a bunch of debt, and they were just there forever because they couldn't leave and they just, you know, had to keep getting paychecks. And then there were kind of like, there were a lot of people that slowly, just because it was such an isolated, weird place, they were becoming isolated, weird people and it was kind of becoming their lives. And just, it was just really, it it was the kind of stuff that even to myself I was catching when I go home. I'd have less and less to talk about every time I go home, and you know, dinner was was always kind of awkward. Like home in America, yeah, back like in you the U.S. Felt like this was affecting you, definitely. And you couldn't come back and, and function in a, like a normal situation back yeah, in America. I actually made a habit of reading celebrity gossip blogs every morning while I was over there, just because it was just. I feel like when you're in that like. Push, hard pushing life and death kind of world you're the, the volume on everything else kind of starts to get turned down and like people fret and stress and lose their minds over silly crap that is absolutely of no consequence and that was why I just like started keeping up these celebrity gossip blogs I did not care I don't like celebrities I don't find this interesting but I just read it like taking my vitamins so when I got home I'd have some pool of inane crap to dip into to to talk about and feel like could be a part of the conversation. Wow, man, that's insightful. And so the decision then to come down here was based on kind of that feeling, like you just weren't assimilating very well in American society, so you decided... Yeah, yeah, well, I was, I kind of hit that point, like I said, where it's, you know, you start to wonder if you're the only, if, you know, everyone feels like they're the only sane person in the loony bin, but sometimes you got to step back and Shutter Island, that puppy. (laughs) And, uh, that was, that was kind of where I was at. And, you know, I'd, I'd started dating Elisa, you know, and, uh, yeah, it was... I mean, that, that was a whole other thing in and of itself, but I don't know. I don't, on the same note, I don't know that I could have done it on my own, just the the flipping and being like, I'm out, you know? And I mean, did it, did I do it perfectly? No. Um, but it, 
you know, and sometimes you just, you got to move and whatever that impetus, whatever that kick in the ass is to do it, whatever, it got the job done. You got to, sometimes you just got to be results oriented. And so the result is just like, I got to move. This is going to turn probably really bad for me. So like, let's hit the yeah. road and uh, see where I land. Pretty much. Yeah. Cause I mean, we're talking, I mean, it was good money and, but it was an unsustainable lifestyle in a place with a job that wasn't going to go forever. And you know, it's, you, you leave the party before people start puking or after people start puking. And it's, it's just better if you leave before. Yeah. So why Nicaragua? Uh, Google made it sound really good. Wow. Uh, no, I that that's there's a, there's a hair of truth to that. Um, like I mean, I grew up uh, like Whittier is just dead north of Huntington Beach. So you know, I liked to go surfing as a kid, and that was kind of it. It was to come down here and try to get more, and you know, it seemed like there was probably some opportunity. So initially, we moved to San Juan del Sur and uh, lived there for like nine months, and. Uh, just it was not a fan of San Juan. It's like it's got all the problems of a big city and all the problems of a small town and none of the conveniences of either. And uh, yeah, and then uh, just went up and down through the country looking for options. Like investments. And, yeah, investments. Investments stuff, exactly. to kind of keep you sustained while you live in us in Nicaragua. Well, yeah. I mean, when you watch, if if you watch a movie, if if I were to say my life before that was a movie about like a contractor in Iraq. The natural storyline would have been that progression through Iraq to flipping the table to moving to the beach. And then in the movie, when you hit the moving to the beach part, the credits would start rolling and we wouldn't have to worry about anything after that. Real life doesn't have credit reels. And so it's, it's kind of tough. Like it's like, Whoa, what's the next step? And just readjusting from there. And so that, that was kind of, it was looking for something business wise and kind of sustainable. And so present time, you now own Giants Foot Surf. That's correct. Yeah. Giants which Foot is Surf. a surf camp in Southern Nicaragua. Yep. And you've been doing that now for eight years. It's about eight years. Yeah. And you're getting in the water every day surfing or me. Oh God, no. No, 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 no. So no, you no. dream to come down and surf every day? No, no, it's, it's, it, it is, it has been squashed dead. Um, <laughs> part of the problem with that, it's just tricky because it's, especially when you're a sole proprietorship, like when you're the owner and it's just you, like in a place like this, it, when you have a business, everyone wants to get out surfing, but there are also times when something specifically needs to get done and therefore the sacrifices have to be made. And when you're the only one that's invested in the actual like business, it's, it always falls to you just a hundred percent of the time. It's a great way to take what you love and turn it into bookkeeping. Let's talk more about that because I think from a lot of people's perspectives, like you live the dream, Yeah, you know, you're here in Nicaragua on a beautiful beach. You have a very successful surf camp that seems to provide a lifestyle that is healthy mm -hmm. at least. Um, you can go back to the States when you want. So, I mean, for somebody who wants to come down and live that dream, what kind of advice would you give them to, to consider, to think about, to do prior to coming down and doing it? On the, on the topic of <clears throat> living the dream, uh, just one more thing, go back to Iraq. Because I kind of split my time up because at one point I uh, went back to Iraq for a year between because a contract popped up and it was, it was a good one. 
and uh, went and took it. But it was just so funny because I still remember because on my vacations I'd come here and then I was working there and then when I was here it was like, oh, you get to come here and over there making money and then when I was over there it was just everyone just like this guy this this some bitch right here's got a surf camp in Nicaragua when he's not here and it it sounds nice on paper <laughs> but I mean it is it really is nice I'm just I'm prone to looking at the at the the, the glass half empty kind okay. of guy it's just it's kind of my takeaway it, it is it is nice but when you refine it and you spend time on it, you, you discover a lot about yourself and what you actually like and what you actually enjoy. Yeah. Well, what is that? What do you actually like and enjoy? Well, for me, I like the the build-up. I like the... Um, I, I like when that, when that provincial reconstruction team... It was a perfect example of this, and I didn't really see it at the time... Because, you know, older and experienced and all that jazz. When I was first there and I was getting a lot of gratification about the job, it was when we were expanding, we are building, we are going. And then it turned into maintaining the program. And I was like, okay, well, this is it. And, you know, my job satisfaction dropped significantly. But, all right, it's a paycheck. You just go and you do it. This is what we said you do. And then when it turned into wind down of like, all right, Good job, guys. High fives around. We're rolling this puppy back. It was just depressing and awful. And that was kind of what sent me into that, like, I got to get out of here. Um, and then here, I like the... I really I really enjoyed the, the business of it. I like... like, And that was it. I came out like, oh, I'm surfing, you know, do business stuff on the side. And then I've kind of come to realize I like the... The, the, the responsibility of the, the, it's just me like at this place if we don't work if I don't get it done if we don't land the bookings that's all on me and obviously it feels terrible when you screw it up and it's wrong but when it's right it feels so good to be like I did that you know it's that classic kind of entrepreneurial spirit where most entrepreneurs like that build up but then to yeah. see it through and even wind it down is kind of that's when they hire other people exactly to see the details the maintenance through. is if it's when it's where you want it and it's, it's it's not the right place and it's tough and like I what I personally want out of it I, I don't I don't believe and this is completely anecdotal I don't believe that inherently what we want is what we should do and is what's good for us like you're an entrepreneur and you want to grow forever and you want to do this. You're like, yeah, that sounds a lot like cancer. Um, Interesting you, point, yeah. You got, like, I, it's tough. Like, I feel like we've got this to a good place and just because I feel like I want to do more doesn't mean it's necessarily what's, what's right for everyone because that's the other piece on it is it, it varies from entrepreneur to entrepreneur. Um, I'd say the number one thing that I hear about people who come down here and they're like, hey, I want to get a business going. And they'll be like, well, I just want to, you know, put in some money, get the place going in like five or six years, have it working, then I'm making just enough to live off of, and then I can stop. And I'm like, look, if your number one goal is to stop working, do not get into entrepreneurship. This is not for you. Like, I enjoy this. I love it. I look at it, and I very, very specifically, 
against my nature. I know it is my nature to sit down one day, especially once I, if, if I ever move on to the next thing, and look back and see how much I was paid per hour to do this. And it probably is somewhere around a dollar. Okay. Dollar an hour. About a buck an hour. I just gut shot guess, and I refuse to do that math because I'm terrified of what I'm going to find inside. Like, if, if you just want to... Some people like to clock in, clock out that 40-hour-a-week thing, and I get it. That's my weird little fantasy, man. Like, I fantasize about just sitting in a cubicle, crunching stuff. Oh, 1700 Getting up, walking out that door, and someone's like, Bryce, your cube's on fire! And I'm like, nope, don't care. And it's it's funny, because, like, I see that, but on the same note, I'd be miserable so fast. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like snow. I've never lived anywhere cold in my life. The only place I've ever lived that it snowed was Baghdad, and that was a weird morning. But, um, the, uh, it's like, yeah, snow sounds great sometimes. You're living in the tropics. You're like, man, I, like, you need to be obsessed with it. Like, my next vacation, I'm going to go to the mountains. I'm going to go snowboarding. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it. And, and you go and you do it, and it's great. And three days later, you're like, fuck this. So uncomfortable. Tired of walking around the house. I have to wear shoes inside. Why do you have to wear shoes inside? They have special shoes for inside. They're called slippers. Never occurred to me why slippers existed until I was somewhere cold and my feet were making me miserable. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just like growing up in warm places. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why, why do you guys need special indoor shoes? That's weird. Mm-hmm. It's miserable. Yeah, I think that's really, really well said. Like, I think a takeaway people could take from this is that, you know, really um, know why you're coming here and, and cut all that like bullshit fantasy out of it and how it's going to be because the reality is going to be way different. Yeah. But if you accept it, you're going to have a great experience. Yeah. If you don't, you're going to be back in America with your tail between your legs in the first six months. Absolutely. It's it's very know thyself. And, like, I feel like at the surf camp, it's funny, we get a lot of guests at the end of their week that are like, this is so great. I, this is so awesome. I want to move down here. And I'm like, thank you. That means we did our job right. No, you don't. <laughs> no, because we just, like, part of what we do is make sure every piece of that because we know what it takes for an American to be comfortable and it's very, things work very differently down here and we make sure you've only got a week so we shield you from all of that. Mm -hmm. We try to make it as cushy of a comfortable American experience without going full overboard like like some of the developments around here. They're so Isolated, They almost feel like a little colony where it's like, no, no, no. We have brown people who come in and work, but otherwise, away with you. Um, and that's the thing I've always liked about Giants because we're in a Pueblo. So you kind of still get that feel. And like, this is, this is a cool little town with good people. And we get to feel that. But when it comes to like the logistics and the difficulty of the, the closest grocery store being 45 minutes away, the closest ATM being 30 minutes away... Uh, Dealing with government issues. Uh, dealing with government issues. You don't have to see any of that. We we are the we're the, the the gatekeeper to prevent that. You're just you just get to go on the boat, have a good vacation, and no never know any of that happened. What's the most frustrating thing? I mean, I know there's a lot of them, but there's one that stands out, like the power going out or the uh, the politics of the country hindering you from actually accomplishing anything, like. 
Um, my my biggest one is well, there there are a lot of distinct cultural differences here that take a lot of people a lot of time to 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 adjust to. And I'd say the biggest one for your average um, North American is if you go, let's say you need to get a permit and they only do them on Tuesdays from 8 to noon and you go in there at 9 and no one's there. Your initial reaction is anger. You're like, why isn't this guy here? This is the only time they do it. And then you're like, well, I'll come back later. And But when you're at that door, you look around and there'll be two Nicaraguans just sitting there staring at nothing, not even reading a book. They're just sitting there. They're they're waiting for that person to come back in. Um, and that's 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 a big difference. Here, when they say they're only doing it Tuesdays from eight to noon, what they're really saying is I don't come in Tuesdays eight to noon. Um, because the that time isn't for them. That time's for you. They're telling you to get there at eight AM and they're telling you to wait until noon, I might blow through. So if you weren't there at 8, and that guy showed up at 8.15, stamped everyone out, he feels accomplished. He's like, no, I, I said 8 to noon, and you weren't there. It's completely the other direction. So you, you have to take a Kindle. You have to have a few things on your phone that you need to get done. And you just go, and you sit there at 8, and you smile, and you us everyone. And sometimes they don't come in at all. And I've got a whole little system for that. But if you actually do your time and do that wasted eight to noon, you're probably going to get your stuff done in two or three trips. Wow, yeah. Really well said, man. I think it did capture uh, exactly how running a business here can be and is for everybody. Mm -hmm. And like you said, though, in this little village, this Pueblo that you have your camp in Gigante, um, there's a lot of expats doing the same thing. And and we're all kind of united in Mm -hmm. that way that we all have to go through it together oh yeah you know and and the the locals who live here we've really bonded with in some ways and then we have you know definitely people that we haven't but it's definitely more of a I feel a realistic balance between this country and Mm -hmm. our presence in this country yeah than say if you just bought a condo over in development went from the airport to your condo and like yeah maybe you went to the Mercado Mm -hmm. you know every so often but yeah um, it's a rich very rich experience by being here that you learn a lot about yourself yeah it's yeah and it's it's funny too because it's you learn a lot about yourself and um like one i thought was funny was uh one of my employees one time went into this government office uh, conrad he's uh and he's from winnipeg and he uh I'm, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw any specific government offices under the bus because okay. I really don't need anyone getting cranky with me. But um, he went in and he's like, they he'd gone in. It's a very common Nicaraguan thing for them to be like, hey, here is all the paperwork we need for you to do this, and it's a handwritten list that they want you to copy down, or they'll just tell you because they a lot of times don't like to write it down because when you come back in, this is what happens. There's one magically newly invented document they need. And sometimes you'll even find out that you'll go to that office and they want the document first that you're trying to get, like, so it creates like a feedback loop. But it was hilarious because he kept going into this office and it was always a new one and a new one. And he's generally pretty good at this. 
and I was like, he's like, it's always the same girl. And I was like, I have a question. Like, if you were back home and, like, it was, you, you were in, like, and you saw a government office doing this, and it was a white government office doing it to a non-white person, what would you think? You're like, oh, they're doing it because it's racist. I'm like, no, take a second. Because white folk are not used to it. So it's funny when they're completely blind to the fact, because it hasn't been their experience. They're completely blindsided by it. It's like, oh, oh my God, that's totally what it is. I'm like, yeah, so just, you know, it sucks and just deal with it and go to someone else. Mm -hmm. Like, try to figure it out. You've got to do more work and, you know, be a little empathetic to people that in the U.S. that have to live their lives that way. Absolutely. You know, because yeah. it's just funny. Because down here, I mean, it's it's we're, it's just a different experience, and yeah. it's and it's a part of that experience. Yeah. It's going to happen. And like I said, when you're white and you've been living life on easy mode, it's it's kind of a it's 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 a shocker. And it sometimes you just generally don't they aren't used to looking for it because mm-hmm. it just doesn't happen to mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Yeah. Good point, man. And you're right. It's just one hurdle over another that sometimes you just don't even realize why you have to make the hurdle. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's, you, sometimes you think that little step back and you're like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, so yeah, you have this beautiful camp giants foot on the beach where people can come and surf for a week and, um, you give them a full all inclusive experience. Yeah, that's it. We and just try to make it, uh, as you know, cause we know that people only have that one like when it's your vacation you don't get much of it so you kind of need to hit a home run and that's what we're about mm-hmm. so we got the boat we try to make sure you aren't going to get skunked you're going to whatever your week is is a home run like even with the the boat tours for example like it's in theory bad for business we don't even run them in january and february mm-hmm. I, I won't book it because the conditions are just not ideal. They're, you're probably going to get skunked, mm-hmm. like just statistically. I mean, mm-hmm. it's possible that you won't, but it's just a really bad mm-hmm. time. If you're trying to just, like score, if you're just coming to, if you're coming to learn, it's actually not bad because it's pretty small swell, so mm-hmm. it kind of can make things easier. So when's the ideal season then for a surfer who can surf who wants to come get the best waves of their life? Uh, May through August. Okay. Definitely. So, yeah, so it sounds like you're very transparent about the conditions to yeah. your clients, potential clients who want to come. Well, the last thing we want is someone to have a bad time, man. I yeah. really like to set expectations where they should be. Like, that's that's it. Cause, and if anything, I'd, if I had to choose, I'd actually rather undersell than oversell because people feel better. You know, the last thing I want to do is blow something up when it's not you know we in some ways well in some ways it bites us because we're always shooting for that five star and i feel Mm -hmm. like the guys that make money are the ones that shoot for threes (laughs) but it's a good practice it's fine i don't worry about it we take we take a lot of pride in this place and what we do so Mm -hmm. i personally i just need to be proud of what i'm making so that's that's what we do that's rad so you're 35 you've been through some incredible experiences in the middle east nicaragua if somebody if you give one bit of advice to somebody who's living a life in America they're not happy with and they need a change and they've considered traveling or considered coming to a place like this to start a new life for themselves, what would you tell them? Uh, wow, having seen a lot. Um, it, like, I, I really wouldn't, it, it doesn't have to be a big deal. You can just go and do it. It doesn't need to be... Like moving to Nicaragua yeah. or going and traveling? You're going and traveling first, I think, is a good bet. Just to kind of get a vibe. 
don't fixate on the things you love. It's it's like dating someone, you know? Like, out the gate, don't, don't fixate on the things you love. Fixate on the things that annoy you. Because if you're dating somebody and they're like, they just, when they're sitting watching TV, they go, <laughs> that's going to, in a few years, you're going to want to kill them over that. So you really need to focus on those things because it's, and if you see those and it's like, no, it's, I, can, I can work with that. Or the cultural idiosyncrasies of a place line with your personality better than home. That could be a good fit. Like, for example, big one down here versus North America is the concept of privacy, I find. In, um, like, if you're in an apartment building up north, the expectation is that I am quiet because I am respecting my neighbor's privacy and my neighbor is respecting my privacy by being quiet as well. So we are quiet and we're respecting privacy. Down here, it's a bit more of a, my neighbor's having a party and it's making a lot of noise, but I'm respecting his privacy by not going over there and telling him what to do in his own home. And when I have a party, he respects my privacy by doing the same. Both concepts of privacy, just both different. And it gets into a clash when you have someone that comes from the quiet versus someone that comes from the loud. Because the loud guy's like, oh, I'm going to have a party. And the guy sitting in his house being like, oh, they're making so much noise. I'm going to go over it. I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. And gets up and goes over there and says something and he feels all righteous about, you know, protecting my privacy. And then another guy's like, can you guys believe that guy coming to my home telling me what to do, disrespecting my privacy? They're just two totally different concepts. Mm -hmm. But if you're the kind of person that that sort of thing fits and you're looking at a different culture, it's uh, good. More power to you. Yeah. So yeah, your advice sounds like just don't make such a big deal out of it. Just go try it, traveling or even coming down looking for investments. Yeah. But get a feel for it and pay attention to things that really annoy you because those are going to they're going to kill you. That's what's going to that's what's going to ruin you. Mm. Those are what are going to send you back home with your tail between your legs. So if you can accept those things, this is probably going to be a place you'll thrive in. It's it's. I mean, you've also got to look at. There's there's a bit more to it, but that's that's that would be my first step for sure. And you know, don't don't fall for the spring break effect. Every place is beautiful for a week, man. Mm-hmm. Like there are very few places I've been that after a week I was just like, this place is a dump. Never mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go and you try to have a good time, you can do anything for a while, but mm-hmm. take a little take a little bit of time on it. And yeah, it's just it doesn't have to be a complete table flip for sure. As someone who's done the complete table flip. Mm-hmm. Well, man, you've lived an interesting life, dude, and thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah, no sweat. We appreciate your time and best wishes and luck with whatever you choose to do next. We'll uh, have in the show notes a link to a giant fit for surf for anybody who wants to come down and, and have that full service of yeah, waves and, and fun. Very so good. Thanks again, Bryce. Appreciate your time. Yeah, go ahead and mention the podcast, and we'll give you the uh, 10% previous guest discount, too. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, if you mention the podcast, you get 10% off of uh, your tour in uh, Giants with Surf, Nicaragua. Cool. Thank you, Bryce. That's fine. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that Maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. 
and I'll see you next time.